Well, uh, again, my name is Sam, and I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, If you've got a Bible in front of you, then flip ahead, oh, I don't know, a chunk of pages to the book of Ephesians. That's completely useless, isn't it, telling somebody to flip a a chunk of pages. Flip ahead to our uh, Old Testament, excuse me, our New Testament reading from Ephesians chapter 6. That'll make it helpful to follow along. Now, two weeks ago, I wrote a pastoral letter to our church. And I encouraged us to view our church's recent history, the last six months or so in particular, in light of the spiritual realities that we discover in the Bible. Over the past six months, our church has endured multiple egregious sufferings, taken individually. Each of them is what the Puritans called crosses, losses, sorrows, and sufferings, the warp and woof of life in a fallen world. Taken together, they add up to more than the sum of their parts. I believe and I'm saying this with the rest of the church leadership, the parish council, and our diocesan leadership, including our bishops, I believe that we're seeing a sustained spiritual assault on our church, and by extension on the family of churches here in the valley of which we're a part. And so in the letter, I explained that in addition to fasting and praying, which our church has been doing, that we would be spending several weeks in the biblical passage par excellence of spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Definitely the best-known verses in the book of Ephesians and probably some of the best-known verses in the entire Bible. So this morning, I want to set the scene for this series. Uh, I really only have two big points. They both have to do with spiritual warfare. Number one, what is the nature of spiritual warfare? What exactly is it? How do we characterize it? How are we to understand it? Number two, in this spiritual warfare, whatever it is, what is to be the posture of the Christian? Okay? Spiritual warfare, what is it? Once we figure that out, what's the posture of the Christian? All right, first, what's the nature of spiritual warfare? Well, why don't we start by saying what spiritual warfare isn't? Spiritual warfare is not, first, a battle with impersonal forces. Now, I know it's weird to talk about spiritual opposition, and it's far more palatable to talk about movements and forces and Uh, processes than it is to talk about conscious spiritual beings. So often that sounds wacky and embarrassing. But the Bible is quite clear that we're talking about more than impersonal forces and processes. These spiritual beings, whatever they are, they exist and they have an impact on our lives. Okay, so here's a second thing. They're not impersonal forces, but we don't directly experience these beings, and this is critical. We experience their effects. 
In other words, the way that we engage with spiritual opposition is in the tangible, mundane, visible, everyday forms of our normal life. We don't spiritualize ourselves into these kind of Jedi-like mystics, right? These super spiritual Christians who are able to fight spiritual battles. No, we engage in spiritual warfare in precisely uh, the way that God intended us to do. By being the kinds of beings he made us to be. As spiritual beings, but as embodied spiritual beings. As human beings who live in time and space. The point isn't to escape that. So whatever spiritual warfare is, we know what it's not. It's not, on the one hand, a battle with impersonal forces. It's not, on the other hand, about escaping our embodied nature. So that's what we don't mean by spiritual warfare. But what do we mean? Well, if you, uh, I'm not telling you to go and look at podcasts on spiritual warfare, by the way, because almost everything, almost everything that you find is completely wacky. Okay, so what we need to do is to go to the Bible and to ask how did the biblical authors understand these spiritual realities. And by the time we get to the book of Ephesians, and Paul is, which is basically a manifesto on spiritual warfare from verse 1 right through to the very end, how do we get there? Okay, so let's start in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's this cosmic stage, and it's densely populated with these spiritual beings. We have Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, the Most High God, the Creator of heaven and earth. We have humanity, who, whom God puts in the garden to be priests and kings over his creation. We have angels and demons who are so numerous that the Bible talks about them in these, uh, in, using military language. They're like these innumerable armies. God is called Adonai Sevaot, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. But then we have these archangelic beings, these cosmic rulers who oversee certain aspects of God's creation. Who are these guys? These archangelic beings are characterized as a kind of divine council to whom God delegates authority to rule in creation. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit like Yahweh is, is a general and these kind of archangelic beings, these powers, are his lieutenants. So when we read in Psalm 29 and Psalm 82 about the gods of the nations, we're reading about these archangelic beings. As well we do, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, which says that when the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided mankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers uh, the number of the gods, his own portion being Israel. What's the point here? Is the point that every nation kind of has a corresponding spiritual power so that we can look up at Canada and say, no, 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 evil. We've No, that's not the point. The point here is that the archangelic beings, these powers, they bear delegated authority to rule under the most high God the one who is distinguished above all else by the fact that he and none other is the creator of heaven and earth. 
Now, interestingly, we encounter one of these beings in Daniel chapter 10. In the previous chapter, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's been praying a prayer of confession. He's been repenting on behalf of Israel. So three weeks later, Daniel is out on a stroll on the bank of the river Tigris, and the archangel Gabriel appears to him, and he explains that the instant that Daniel had prayed that prayer, God had sent Gabriel to deliver a message to Daniel. Daniel chapter 10. The thing is, it had taken three weeks for Gabriel to get to him. So, I mean, you know, what was going on? Did his shoelace get untied? Did he have errands to run? Well, Gabriel explains that the reason he got held up is because he was fighting someone. He was fighting someone called the Prince of Persia. Now, who is this? It's another one of these archangelic beings. In, this, the, in the Israelite worldview, this is uh, an, another one of what we call the powers. Now, what's the point? The point is that in the Old Testament, the cosmic stage has several actors on it. The most high God, humanity, angels, demons, and then these archangelic beings, some of whom operate joyfully under God's authority, others of whom have rebelled. Now, between the Old Testament and New Testament periods, and by the way, this is what, as the Old Testament authors are often doing, much of uh, the kinds of cultural things of the day that they're appropriating, they're, they're doing to critique. So I'm not saying to, to go away and to take all of this stuff at, uh, at face value. I want to be very careful about how we set up our understanding of spiritual warfare. Now, between the Old and the New Testament periods, people speculated about these archangelic rulers. They gave them specific names. They, they identified their activities with specific nations. They developed these elaborate narratives about them. So during this period, from, in fact, about the time that the book of Haggai takes place, all the way up to the destruction of the second temple in AD 70, Jewish writers during this period took Old Testament teaching about the powers and the authorities in a decidedly speculative direction. And this was the dominant worldview when the New Testament authors showed up on the scene. This is their inherited worldview, in, including Paul. And the reason that this is significant, the reason I'm belaboring this so much, is because of what Paul did with this inherited Jewish understanding of, of spiritual powers and authorities. And I think that we need to follow Paul here, so this is the point. Here's the first thing he did. First, Paul ignored fanciful matters like names and speculations. He didn't indulge in flights of fancy about spiritual beings. He didn't get distracted about things that the Bible doesn't make absolutely limpid. Some people get really wacky about this spiritual warfare stuff. Paul warns against this fascination with speculative matters. You remember how he cautions Timothy about those who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies and who promote speculations. Paul avoided speculating about what the Bible doesn't 
clearly reveal, particularly when it took the spotlight, the spotlight off of the basic gospel message. We should avoid that too. Here's the second thing. Paul emphasized the effects of these spiritual beings. Remember I said we're spiritual beings, but we're embodied spiritual beings. We don't pretend to be something other than what God created us to be. So the Bible calls us to discern spiritual realities by acknowledging acknowledging their existence and by recognizing their effects. And Paul's very much with Jesus here, by the way. When Jesus is chatting with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says this, the wind, the Greek pneuma, it means can also mean the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying here. The wind or the Spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now the point is, you can't see the Spirit except by its effects. So too with, with all spiritual realities. We don't perceive them directly. We're not like Jedi Masters. Rather, we see their effects. So we're to avoid idle speculations, number one. We're to discern spiritual realities by their effects, number two. And now thirdly, we're to wage war against these fallen spiritual powers. That is what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians from verse one all the way to the end. And how are we to do that? Are we to abstract ourselves? Are we to pull out of Uh, this embodied nature that God has given us? Are we to ignore the way that he made us to be? No. The way Paul tells us that we conduct this spiritual warfare is by embodying the gospel in concrete, physical, earthy ways that transform the destructive effects of the powers into demonstrations of the wisdom and power of God. The church's job, in other words, is to subvert the powers. We're going to see in just a minute that the way that God is using the church is to teach the powers what is wisdom and power really like. See, this is very different from viewing spiritual warfare as, as a kind of wacky mysticism. The call of the New Testament is not to replace the earthly with the spiritual. The the Bible alerts us to the fact that our earthly lives already overlap with spiritual realities in the heavenly places. Therefore, we're to do spiritual battle as the kinds of beings that God has made us to be. As spiritual beings, yes, but as embodied spiritual beings. So spiritual warfare looks one way for an archangel, right? It looks like something else entirely for you and me. God is not calling you like he called Gabriel to go and fight the prince of Persia, okay? He's calling you to identify where uh, the effects of spiritual wickedness have become apparent in social patterns of human corruption and exploitation and oppression and to respond in prayerful reliance on his spirit, And when we do so, we're engaging in what Paul characterizes as spiritual warfare. When we respond by demonstrating renewed ways to behave, to think, to speak, to invest our time, to use up our stuff, when we reflect the wise 
rule of King Jesus into this war-torn creation, then we're engaging in what Paul calls or describes as spiritual warfare. So let me give you an example. About six weeks ago, NPR aired an episode of the series, All Things Considered, entitled, White Supremacist Ideas Have Historical Roots in U.S. Christianity. The episode rightly condemns the historic capitulation of white Christians to racism in our country. Now, at one point, the reporter cites a powerful remark from Martin Luther King's 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail. I want you to consider it. I want you to hear it through the lens of Paul's teaching on spiritual warfare. Here's the the citation from King. So often, the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often, it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and sometimes even vocal sanction of things as they are. Close quote. Now, how would Paul have heard this? With what King called the power structure of the average community, Paul would have considered a spiritual reality, a conscious, personal, spiritual reality that added up to more than the sum of its human parts. King was putting his finger on what Paul calls the principalities and powers. This is so relevant to our deeply divided cultural moment. Christ calls us to inhabit a position in our world that is deeply uncomfortable to two different sides in the latest iteration of our culture wars. On the one hand, we can't settle for that genteel civic Christianity which admits the reality of the powers. It's all about spiritual reality but it refuses to address their effects in the world. On the other hand, we can't settle for a spiritually denuded gospel that responds to effects while discarding all spiritual matters, including and especially the notion of sin, which is the ultimate root of all of these troubles. It's sin that originated what Paul calls the dividing wall of hostility. If we want to look at the basis of what, or at least what Paul thought was the basis of ethnic hostility, we need to talk about sin. God's people have to hold both of these things together in a position that's very challenging for the church in our cultural moment right now. Spiritual reality and earthly responsibility. And unless the white church learns to occupy this difficult position 
then whether we're on the right or on the left, we'll just be a bunch of white people missing the point that the African-American church in our country has, by and large, done a great job of guarding spiritual reality and earthly responsibility go together. They can't be separated. Now this brings us to a second shorter point, right? I said we were going to talk about the nature of spiritual warfare. What, do we, what don't we mean? What do we mean? And then once we've figured that out, at least a little bit, what is to be the posture of the Christian in the battle? Well, look at Paul. I said Ephesians is, at its heart, a manifesto for spiritual warfare. Paul has crafted this letter to identify the Lord Jesus as the triumphant divine warrior over all the powers and authorities. And you hear this loud and clear in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. This is the thesis statement of the book. And in it, Paul describes the death and resurrection of Jesus as the conclusive victory in this spiritual battle. Paul says that God displayed his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put, and listen, this is divine warrior language, and he put all things under his feet. And then listen to what he says now. And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One of the authors that I read on Ephesians in preparing for this sermon very helpfully talked about the church being called to embody the divine warrior. It's it's right there. God has put everything under Jesus' feet and he's given him his head to the church. That's what Paul is saying. He is literally calling the church to embody the divine warrior. Okay, so the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord victorious, conquering Lord over heaven and earth. Now, that's a big claim. Okay, so in chapter 2, Paul backs this claim up in two ways. First, he shows that Christ has redeemed us from our sin and our transgressions. And then secondly, he shows us that Christ has conquered by tearing down the dividing wall of hostility, of ethnic hostility between Jew and Gentile. And all of this culminates at the end of chapter 2 when Paul concludes with a monument to Christ's victory. The church. The church is the monument to God's triumph in Christ. And in all of this, Paul is following a kind of literary formula that you find time and again in the Old Testament in places where God is characterized as a divine warrior. So Paul's getting his point across fairly clearly. But then at the beginning of chapter 3, we run into a problem. So Paul begins this prayer for the saints in Ephesus, and then he breaks off. In mid-sentence. Now why? Did he just get distracted? 
You see, Paul, this emissary of the supposedly victorious Lord Jesus, he's writing from a Roman prison cell. And to Paul's Roman readers, that means one thing. It means that the gods of Rome are mightier than the God of Paul. So Paul has to answer this this problem. He does it in two ways. First, and this is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Paul points out that when he preaches, even when he preaches from a prison cell, God creates the church. He brings Jew and Gentile alike to faith in Christ. And he builds up this spiritual temple, this monument to God's victory in the reconciled people of the church. And then in the next verse, chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that not only is God working despite my affliction, God is in fact working through my affliction. God is working through Paul's imprisonment for a purpose. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul's saying, through my weakness and my suffering and my affliction, God is teaching the spiritual powers what his might is really like. God manifests his strength, Paul says, through my weakness. Now, Paul doesn't glorify weakness in and of itself. Weakness for weakness sake is not a good thing. One of the common accusations of Christianity's cultured despisers is that Christians are merely superficially loving, superficially forgiving. This is the whole line of criticism developed by the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Our weakness and our humility, Nietzsche said, it's just a mask for the grudges that we Christians deeply nurse against our enemies. We don't really forgive our enemies. We just wait for the day when God is going to come and punish them. And that's going to satisfy our delayed desire for revenge. It's at the root of what uh, Nietzsche meant when he called Christianity a system of slave morality. It's this despicable, weak, new view of the world, Nietzsche said, that upturned this upstanding pagan worldview where might is right, and it replaced that respectable, strong man's religion with a weak, despicable form of vengeance. And the thing is, when weakness is glorified in and of itself, Nietzsche's right. When weakness is glorified in and of itself, all you get is a weak form of vengeance. When weakness is glorified in and of itself, you don't get people who become the kind of conquerors that Paul was. You get people who nurse vengeance. Paul is not calling us to weakness for the sake of weakness. 
Paul is calling us to weakness for a purpose. This is verse 10, and it's the only verse I'm really commenting on this morning. So that we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The world fails to understand the power of Christian weakness for the same reason that the powers and principalities failed. They failed to see that through the church's weakness, the power and the might of God is shining forth. They failed to see that strength when it was embodied by a crucified king. They were only just beginning to learn that strength when they witnessed the king's ambassador in chains in a Roman prison cell. And what I want to say to our church this morning is that the past six months of our suffering is not wasted. God is even now displaying, demonstrating his power and might through our weakness. Now the problem, of course, with weakness, the whole point is you don't feel strong. So how can you know? How can you feel God's strength in your weakness? So I just want to send you away with two very simple applications. Number one, believe in the might of God. Actively, constantly remind yourself of it. Study scripture and let your imagination come alive with it. Let the mighty works of God in history, his works of creation and, and of redemption, his previous works in your own life, and in the lives of people who are greater saints than you are. Let those things show you that you are always infinitely underestimating the strength of his might. Develop a voracious appetite to believe in the power of his might. But that's not going to be enough. So as you grow in grasping the infinite reach of his might, rest in his might. Uh, one of my favorite uh, books is by an English Puritan called William Gurnall. It's a big, thick volume, uh, actually, of sermons on this section of Ephesians. And in his sermon on this passage, Gurnall calls his congregation to rest on a five-fold bond that unites the Christian to the strength of God. So rest knowing, first, that God is your Father. He has adopted you. He is renewing you in His image. And He says that you will never be plucked from His hand. Rest knowing, secondly, that God loves each of His children more than you could possibly imagine. And as Gurnall says, if we have God's heart, we will never lack his arm. Rest knowing, thirdly, that God has covenanted himself to you in Christ. That you are, as Gurnall puts it, castled in the covenant. Utterly secure, unshakable, and unflappable through the blood of Jesus. Rest knowing, fourthly, that we are dependent on him by his design. And God does not offer himself to us as a fortress only to refuse 
to defend us when we hide in him. And rest finally knowing that Christ intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father. If you think for a moment that Christ would leave his beloved to be devoured, then you have forgotten that his eternal hands still bear their scars. He has not forgotten you. He sees you. And he sees to it that the strength of God may be yours in your weakness. Therefore, even in your weakness, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.